All right. Well, good morning, everybody. How many of you got a lot of sleep last night? Okay. How many of you could have used a lot of sleep last night? How many of you plan the next 30 minutes to get a lot of sleep? <laughs> just needed the demographic I'm preaching to today. That's good. Hey, it's good to see you here today. I just want to tell you uh, personally, thank you for being here. Uh, there's a lot of things you could have done today. There's a lot of churches you could have visited today, a lot of great churches. And you chose to come worship with us, and I don't take that lightly. And I just want to tell you thank you for being here. It's encouraging. Uh, I know uh, we ought to just encourage ourselves in the Lord, but it's really nice when God allows other people to help encourage us as we go through life. And I uh, just appreciate, appreciate the singing, appreciate everybody who's been involved this morning. If you would this morning, take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, if you would. John chapter number 19. John chapter number 19. Oh, I want to mention this to you. During the handshaking time, somebody lost a really nice little bracelet right here. And if it's not yours, I'm really looking forward to giving it to my wife for her anniversary present. So if this is yours and you don't want to let the redeemed of the Lord say so, I'm going to set it here and you get it afterwards, okay? If some of you realizing Mother Day come, Mother's Day is coming up and you ain't got a gift, maybe it could help you out too. But is it yours, Darren? All right, yeah. Well, I appreciate you being here today. And uh, if you're visiting with us, I just want to thank you for coming and being with us. And if you live in the area, we'd like to tell you thank you for being part of our service. We'd love for you to come back and visit us sometime. If you're visiting us with another church, again, we thank you for being with us. And we hope that God blesses you and your church and where you're at and you pleasing the Lord there. And those of you from out of town, thank you for coming and being with us. And you call Emmanuel your church home. I appreciate your faithfulness. And, you know, it kind of makes me think a little bit. And our people from Emmanuel know that when it comes to jokes, I'm pretty terrible. And I have one that I've used before. And I think it's really good. So some of you are getting really nervous right now. Uh, there was an Easter Sunday morning. It came, and you know everything that goes into Easter, all the kind of pressure and expectations. You know, it's just, you know, a holiday, no expectations or anything. And it says that this mom went to her son's room, knocked on the door. Said, son, you need to get up. It's Easter Sunday. You need to get up, get ready, and go to church. You need to get dressed time to go to church. He says, I don't want to go. And so she waited. She showed patience. She waited about 10 minutes, knocked on the door. Son, you need to get up, get dressed time to go to church. I ain't going today, Mama. I don't know about you, but I've never really said those words to my mama. I don't know what kind of mama this guy had, but my mama had the kind that she could pick your arm up and you touch the ground every 20 yards and she's marching you where she's going. Well, then the third time, son, get up. Get dressed. Time to go to church. I ain't going. Why aren't you going, son? Well, Mama, nobody down there that church likes me. Nobody that church is friendly to me. Nobody that church down there wants me to be there. No one ever says anything nice to me. So I ain't going. She goes, well, son, you got to go. He said, why? Give me one good reason. She said, you're the pastor. So you got to go. Okay? Anyhow, that's as good as it gets. Okay, so. Well, as we come to John chapter 19, and if I can be totally honest with you right off the bat, if there's a Sunday that's a difficult time to preach, it is Resurrection Easter Sunday. You know why? Because you get people that come, and as a pastor, you come and you have expectations of what you should hear, right? And if you're not careful, we all know about the resurrection. And we get very familiar with it to the point where we don't think much of it. Kind of like that brand new car, you know, when you get it, you just like to get in the car and just take a deep breath and smell it. And after you have that car for six months, and if you've got kids, you take a deep breath in your car and go, woo, okay. You kind of take it for granted. But I want to pray for you this morning. I want to pray for myself. 
that when we look at this passage of Scripture, and we're going to look at several so you can follow along as much as you like, I want to encourage you to look at the cross and the tomb that's empty today with a fresh set of eyes. Don't look at it as, I can tell you this story as well as you can tell me this account, Phil. And I also want to encourage you in something. Last Sunday, we celebrated Palm Sunday where Jesus rode in and the crowd yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God, the King has come. Well, now we are a week later and we're at praise God for he is risen. And thank God he is risen. Amen. We're so thankful for it. But the tendency, and I mentioned it to our church last week, the tendency this week has been this. Skip over the cross to get to the tomb. But can I tell you something this morning? There is no empty tomb if there was not a cross. There is no resurrected Savior if there's not a Savior that willingly gave his life, that shed his blood for the remission of sins. There, there is no empty tomb if Jesus doesn't say, not my will, but thine be done, and let this cup, and I drink it, and do the Father's will. And I want us this morning to look at this passage of Scripture that is probably familiar to you a good bit. But I want us to look at it maybe with a different look. But in John chapter 19, beginning in verse number 1, it says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, Behold the man. And when the chief priest, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him, crucify him, for I find no fault in him. If you skip over to verse 28 of that same chapter, Jesus being on the cross to help you understand where we're at, in verse number 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Verse 30 said, When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Lord, as we come to you in prayer this morning, Lord, I thank you so much for this day. Lord, you say in your word, this is the day the Lord hath made. I rejoice and be glad in it. And Lord, I thank you that 2,000 years ago you made this day that we celebrate. Lord, this day that we celebrate your death, the day that you made your burial, and Lord, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, Lord, this is the day. We thank you for it. And Lord, I pray you would be with us this morning as we look at your word. Lord, I pray for these people. Lord, many in here, Lord, know you as their Savior. And they're here on this Easter Sunday to enjoy and worship you. And Lord, I pray you would just have your will and way in our lives. But Lord, I ask if there's someone in our midst today that does not know you as their personal Savior, they've never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, that, Lord, they may lose that knowledge of you and enter into a relationship with Christ. May they drop religion and enter into that relationship. Lord, be with those working with the children this morning. Lord, I thank you for them. I pray they might find favor in the ears and the eyes of those children. Thank you for their sacrifice today. And, Lord, I pray as I take this book, 
Now take your word. Lord, that you would make me usable and cleanse me of self before, Lord, I ask you to use me. Lord, I pray you would help me be a vessel that you can use. Thank you so much for Jesus. Lord, I pray for my other brothers that are probably standing at this moment proclaiming the word. I pray you bless them. Lord, I think of Jonathan Redford today. I pray you'd help him. Daniel Walker. Brother Ayers. I think of Brother Buckless, Lord. I pray you'd help all of them. And the ones I'm not thinking of now. Give them, Lord, exactly your words today. Thank you so much for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. As you come to the crucifixion of Christ, I like reading those words that you probably saw in verse number 30. It says, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. Can there be any more startling or liberating words that you can think of in the whole chrono, the chronologically uh, assigned part of Scripture from Genesis 1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can I tell you from Genesis 1 to John chapter 19, verse number 30, that's what it was, that was the whole plan. Those are the words that we've been waiting for. God created mankind. God created man in his own image. Even there back in creation, you see the Trinity, the God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. He says, let us make man in our own image. And we see there the fall of man. We see where Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And because of that, a sacrifice had to be made. If you remember the story correctly, that because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, when they sinned, it says they hid from God. God come walking in the cool of the day. Speaking with, by the way, just, Think about that for a moment. Can you imagine being in a state to where every morning God came and you saw him and you walked with him and you talked with him? Could you imagine that? Like we have fellowship lifting our voices and singing and when God speaks to his word and God speaks to a song and to fellowship. But can you actually imagine for a moment getting up this morning and the voice that you hear is God saying, where are you at? Let's fellowship. Let's walk. Let's talk. But because of their sin, that fellowship was broken. And they hid from him. And if you remember, what did they do? They took fig leaves, right? They took leaves to try to cover themselves. They were very much scared of being uh, in their state in front of Christ, a scorn of God. And so God says, well, now a sacrifice has to be made. And he took, took an animal and sacrificed and took the skin of that animal to cover him up because he says to have you clean, to have you covered, it's going to require the sacrifice of something that's innocent. And all through the Old Testament, you read about sacrifices and, and lambs and bullocks and all those things. They sacrificed thousands upon thousands that they did. And we read these words, and a lot of times we run right through them. When Jesus says, it is finished. And what does that really mean? Does it mean just his time on the cross is finished? Does it just mean his earthly ministry is finished? What does it mean when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished? Can I tell you what it means? It means paid in full. It means that your redemption and my redemption has been made. That no longer that rams and bullocks and those innocent animals that they would take and shed blood for because he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, as the book of Revelation said, is that he has come and he has paid in full. And it's hard for us to comprehend that. It just seems like just three simple words, doesn't it? You ever hear the words, I love you? Three simple words. But when you know they're meant, then you know everything behind them, they have such a powerful, powerful meaning. And I think to a thousand degree more, when Jesus says, it is finished, it ought to mean something to us. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Why can Jesus say, 
it is finished. Well, can I tell you some points here today is this. Because it is finished, number one I want us to see is that our sin has been paid. And can I say our sin has been paid for completely? There's a lot of people in this world that feel like, you know what? I've got to, I get saved, I put my faith and trust in Christ, I get forgiveness of sin, and then you know what? I'm going to sin again, and when I sin again, oh no, I'm not saved now, I'm not going to heaven. I've got to ask Jesus to forgive me of my sin again, and they bounce back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And the problem is this, John chapter 10 says that no man shall pluck him from my Father's hand, and I'm a man, you're a man, that's talking about mankind, and that, you know, we have everlasting life. And that we have that life through the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that we are sealed until the day of redemption. You're saying, Phil, does that mean since you've got saved, you've never sinned? I sin quite a bit. Daily. But my sin now as a believer does not hinder my salvation in Christ, but it does hinder my fellowship with Christ. Rachel and I, 20 years ago this August 2nd, wow, I pulled that off, um, will have been married for 20 years. Just because I get out of sorts sometimes and might every now and then say or do something I shouldn't do doesn't mean we're no longer married. But it does mean sometimes there's a strain. And, you know, sometimes I can do things, and, or she could do things, not really her, but me, we could do things. And we can strain that relationship to the point where we almost don't even want to be in the same room together. I know I'm probably the only one who experienced that in life. Everybody else is great. We'll have altar call a little bit. Uh, and so... But you know what? No matter what we do, we've entered into that covenant relationship. We're married. But you know what? When I finally come to myself, like the prodigal son did when he was in the pig, pig pen, and we go and we say, I want forgiveness. I want restoration. What we're saying is, I want the fellowship back, not the relationship back, because the relationship's there. The Lord has blessed me with four children. And you know what? I love my children. Do I like everything they do? Absolutely not. They don't like everything I do. But what a wonderful picture in Scripture, especially when you get to the book of Ephesians and it looks at relationships and parents and adults. And when you get to Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6, talking about submitting ourselves to one another. But what a beautiful picture of this is that, you know what? I know in my life I don't always please God. But he loves me anyways. I know I don't always love what God does. I'll just be honest. I don't always love the way God does. His ways are not my ways, and his thoughts are not my thoughts. And I'm very thankful for that, by the way. Because if I got everything I prayed for, I'd be in a mess. If God gave everything to me when I wanted, I'd probably be in a, a bigger mess. But you know, no matter what my children do, they'll always be my children. I may not be pleased. I may not be able to look and say, this is my beloved son or my beloved daughter, and I'm well pleased. But you know what? I'm always going to be their father. You know why? Blood. When Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, he says, you know what? I want to make mankind my blood. I want to make them my family. And when you get saved, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, your sins have been paid for, that you have been forgiven, that you have that everlasting life, you have that eternal life. And what we look for here to understand is when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the wrath of the Father of our sins was on him, and he paid for that totally. If he would, you can hold your place there if you like, but flip to Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 27. And when Jesus says it is finished, it means that our sin, your sin, has been paid for completely. 
In Matthew chapter number 27, the account of Matthew, whenever he talks about Christ and the cross, and, and you know, when you get the whole narrative of the cross, you see Jesus and you see him in the Garden of Gethsemane and you see him when Judas betrays him with a kiss and we see him go off to these trials that are just, they're not just ungodly, they're not even according to the Jewish standard of what they would have, they're all horrible. There wasn't even the right way of handling a trial by their own standards. And so we know at this point, we know Jesus is going to the cross, right? And we know he's going to the cross, but for some reason, in the account of Christ going to the cross, we get this other guy. We get this guy called Barabbas. We already know, we've already accepted Jesus by reading this. He's going to the cross. We understand that he must suffer, as we looked at last week in 1 Peter, that he must in his own body suffer many things on a tree. We understand that. But why in the world, if we know Jesus is going to die, why do we get Barabbas? Why do we get him? In Matthew 27, over in verse, excuse me, in verse number 15, the Bible says this. Now at the feast, the governor was wont to release unto them a, to the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner named Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether the twain will ye I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do with, then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, let him be crucified. Down in verse number 26, it says, Then release he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So why in this account? We understand Jesus is coming to die. We understand that he's been tried. We understand everything about the Sanhedrin. We understand everything about the Pharisees. They've always wanted to kill him. They've always wanted to destroy him. And it says Pilate even understood. He says, I'm going to put Barabbas up there. He's not just a a common thief. Barabbas is a murderer. He's an insurrectionist. He's sedition. Everything that's horrible. He's a bad, bad guy. There's nothing about Barabbas. Oh, he's pretty good. Nothing good. So Pilate says, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I know that they got envy, these leaders, these religious leaders. I'm going to put Jesus up there with a notable criminal that there's no way they're going to want Barabbas released on. And it's kind of interesting. You see Pilate who thinks he's got this authority that says, I have the power to release Jesus or the power to release Barabbas. But can I tell you, Pilate didn't have any authority to release Jesus. Jesus could have snapped his fingers or just thought it and he could have been released and he could not endure a single thing, but he did it all anyways. And we see, what does the crowd say? Crucify him. Crucify him. By the way, it's the same crowd a week earlier, or excuse me, a few days earlier, that's chanting, Hosanna. The king has come. Kind of interesting, just a few days earlier, the one chanting, Hosanna, the king has come, is now saying, crucify him. You know why? Because they had misplaced hope. Because they didn't want Jesus, the savior of their soul. They wanted Jesus, the savior from their oppressor, Rome. They did not want a savior for the everlasting life. They wanted a savior from the oppression they were facing in life. And so we see here how they released Barabbas. 
And I try to think about this account. You know, there's no story that Barabbas, as they unshackle him and he gets set to the crowd, there's no record to turn around and say to Jesus, thank you. Jesus, I owe you everything. Thank you. Thank you for all that you've done. You've made this possible. Thank you. There's no record of that. To our knowledge, Barabbas never put his faith and trust in Christ. Why in the world, then, do we have Barabbas? Because God the Father wants us to see something. That sin had to be paid for. And for Barabbas to go free meant that Jesus had to die. Why in the world did Jesus allow Barabbas to go? Because Jesus loved Barabbas. You ever thought about that? He loved him. He let Barabbas go free even though he was guilty and deserved the cross. He deserved everything that was going to happen. He deserved it and Jesus allowed it. Because you remember what it says. Jesus did what? He opened not his mouth. He didn't say, wait a minute, I'm going to let you go. No, he just allowed it to happen. And I heard someone say, I believe it's Charles Spurgeon. I said it last week. Jesus took the place of Barabbas so that Barabbas could take the place of Jesus. You ever think about that? When Barabbas stood before God, all he saw was sin, hell deserving. But when Jesus, God the Father saw Jesus, he saw pure, perfect Lamb of God. So Jesus sacrificed and paying for it. Jesus had to stand before God the Father as a hell-deserving Barabbas so that Barabbas could stand before God the Father as redeemed, pure, holy. Can I tell you something this morning? I'm Barabbas. You're Barabbas. Because when we stand on the stage of life and compare ourselves to the perfect Lamb of God, can I tell you, the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. You say, Brother Phil, you're telling me that I'm a wicked sinner? No, I'm not trying to tell you. I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And for the wages of sin is death, separation from God. But Barabbas going free is the end of verse number 23 of Romans 6. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Can I tell you, I'm Barabbas today, and I can go free because Jesus wanted to be able to say, it is finished. You are forgiven. Your sin has been paid for. And when we look at the idea of our sin being paid for, you go on in the passage there. After Barabbas goes free, we, we look at the account there in Matthew 27. Look in verse number 27, if you would. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered into them the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put, him, put on him a, ro- a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Don't miss verse 30. And they spit on him and took the reed and smote it him on his head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him and put him and put on his own raiment and led him away to be crucified. The reason we can say it is finished because our sin has to be paid for because sin requires suffering. If you read this account of scriptures, they lead Jesus off. What does it say they do? It says they got him in a hole and and we, they started looking at him. And what they do is they took this crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And before we think this nice little, nice little light crown upon their head, even if you think it's just a nice little crown they gently put on his head, I don't know if you noticed in verse number 29 and 30, 
But what does it say they did to him? They took the rod and they smote him on the head, sinking that crown upon his head, sinking into his skull. You say, Brother Phil, I don't, that's why I like the resurrection. That's why I don't like the crucifixion. I like the resurrection because the resurrection is happy. And, all, and once again, you don't get happiness. You don't get redemption without death. You don't get it. I don't get it. So may I encourage you, don't take your eyes off the cross because the cross to us that are saved is beautiful. The cross to us that are redeemed should not be a sight that we turn our eyes away. The cross to us is what we look at and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. Thank you for doing what I deserve. That's what the cross is. So look at him today. Look at him with that crown on his head. Look at him with that blood running down his face. Look at him that's got spit dripping off. And by the way, I don't know of a more disgusting way to disrespect someone than to have them spit in your face. And by the way, we're talking about somebody spitting in your face. Imagine being the creator, having the creation spit in your face. Closest thing we can ever come up to in our mind really is having one of your own children spit in your face. I don't know how you grew up, but I, I remember my mama said, I, I, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of this world too. But can you imagine Jesus sitting there looking at that soldier knowing who he was. And even if we can think about it like this, created him even though he knew he was going to spit on him. Jesus created the man that took the staff and smashed it on his head with a crown of thorns. He created him. If I knew somebody was going to hurt me or one of my children, I'd go out of my way to stay away from him at least. Jesus created the tree that he would hang and die on. Jesus created the hill that we call Golgotha. None of that's an accident. You know why? Because it is finished because sin had to be paid for. He goes on to say that he was scourged. I mean, he was beaten. They talk about the cat of nine tails. And, and if you want to read really thoroughly, there's a prophecy in Isaiah 53 that talks about that his visage was marred, meaning that when they got through beating him, you really couldn't even recognize him as a man. They beat him to the degree that even you could see inside of him because he was beaten. See, the Jews had a law that you can only whip a man 39 times because if you whip him a 40th time, no, no human can withstand that. But Jesus wasn't whipped by the Jews. He was whipped by the Romans. They had no such mercy. They whipped him and whipped him and whipped him again. And when you read that passage that it says that they threw on him that robe and took it off, I want you to understand, I remember in my time, whenever I'd fall and scrape a knee or hurt myself, and whenever I would go for a little while, that pant leg would maybe dry or those shorts would dry to that, that scuff. And then whenever I pulled those shorts off, what would it do? It would just kind of peel that scab open. Imagine that being your back. I'm pretty sure they didn't say, hey, let's gently get this off of you. I'm pretty sure they just ripped it right off of him and put his clothes back on him. Say, Brother Phil, you spent a lot of time on us. That's right, because Jesus did all this for me. And because if we're not careful... All we see is Hosanna and palm trees and a stone rolled away. But we need to see the Jesus that before he even gets to the cross went through things that none of us would probably even be able to endure physically. The spitting, the mocking him, as it says in other accounts of scripture, they put a blindfold on him. And one by one they go up with their fists and just smash him right in the face. And if that wasn't bad enough, say, hey, who was it to hit you if you're God? God be able to know which one of us hit you. You ought to know. 
And they would just take turns smacking him, smacking him, beating him, beating him. And yet he opened not his mouth. I'm sure Jesus, even though he was human, knew who it was, knew their name. Could probably picture them as a child growing up. He knew everything about them. And yet they're the ones swinging at him, hitting him. And yet he's the one that he's doing all, they're the ones he's doing all this for. Whenever you think about Jesus down on the cross, don't forget, he died on the cross, not just for you and I. He died on the cross for the ones that put him on the cross. So we need to remember that when we think someone's unsavable, they're too far gone. The blood of Christ makes it where no one's too far gone. That we all have redemption through his blood. And we see this. And we see how Jesus suffered that. We won't take the time today, but I encourage you, if you want to read a little bit of prophecy about the coming of Christ, read Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is just filled with all about this, just 13 verses. But as I, Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was brewed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we were healed. He goes on to say, the end of verse 6 of Isaiah 53, it says, And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And when you hear all this and you think of all this, why would God the Father allow this to happen? Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord. Isn't that crazy? It pleased God the Father for his son to suffer. You say, that's crazy. Please there doesn't mean it made him happy. It meant that it satisfied the wrath of God. It satisfied him. It satisfied what had to be paid for sin. You ever wonder when on the cross where it says it got dark? Remember what Jesus says? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's just fulfilling the quote that David says in Psalm 22, by the way, which is the Psalm of the Cross. Same words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because the Father turned his back on his Son because his Son became sin for us. He became every lie, every thought, every sin that you and I have ever committed or ever will commit. He did that, why? So he could pay it all. He could pay for it. So we see it is finished and we understand that our sin is paid for, but because of this, it is finished, and you are accepted in Christ, secondly. You're accepted in Christ. Whenever you look in, if you would, and I know we got you hopping a little bit today, look in Luke chapter 23, if you would. Not only when it is finished because your sin has been paid for, but also you are accepted. You are now accepted in Christ. Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 23 In Luke chapter 23, in verse number 39, I want us to see something. In talking about being accepted in Christ, Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse number 39, the Bible says this, and this is Jesus on the cross, and one of the malefactors or one of the thieves which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? Verse 41, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. He said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. It was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. 
When I read those words about the thief on the cross, and I think about that, when I think it says that Jesus is hanging there and he's bleeding and he's dying and he's suffered everything, and you've got a, a thief that is condemned because of his deeds on one side and a thief on the other side, that even one of the thieves looked at him and even mocked him. It's not enough for the soldiers to mock him. It's not enough for his disciples to run in his hour of need, most of them. It's not enough for that. But now even someone else that's dying for just their cause, as it says there, Rail said, if you're really Jesus, save yourself and save us. He goes on to say that the uh, scribes and everyone around the foot of the cross said, if you really be the Christ, save thyself and we'll believe. You come down off that cross, we'll believe you. There's an absence of something. Faith. Trust. And so we see Jesus there, but there's this one disciple, excuse me, this one thief that's on the other side. And he doesn't have the same view the other thief did. And it makes me think about it in the New Testament, I believe it's in Matthew, forgive me for not knowing the reference. We have all the commandments. And you remember one of the guys came up and said, he said, uh, Master Rabbi, you tell me what the, the greatest commandment is of all the commandments that's given in the Old Testament and the law. Get, give me the greatest commandment. He says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, with all thy heart, and all thy mind. He said, here's the other one. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Can I tell you, in the darkest scene of this injustice, and Jesus with thieves on either side, and thieves on either hand. But even in this greatest hour, can I tell you something of Jesus' struggle and agony? He still loved the thieves. I mean, obviously, didn't he have enough going on in his life at this point that he, he really needed to focus on himself, but Jesus didn't focus on himself during this time. Even hanging on the cross, Jesus fulfills, as he says, love thy neighbor. Love thy neighbor. And what a glimpse of the compassion that we see. Because Jesus... After the one guy railed on him and the other guy says, hey, Lord, just remember me when you come into thy kingdom. The word they remember is the same word that Jesus uses earlier where he says, this do in remembrance. Same word of me. That you don't forget me. That you do it so it does not get stricken out that I will be on your mind and remember what I've done. And our tendency, if we can just be honest, is to focus on our own burdens our own problems that we're facing. Our tendency is just to look at the different things and situations we have in our own life. And our problem is we look past people nearest that need the Lord. I dare say that you're sitting in a room today or you're going to have lunch this afternoon and you're going to be around a lot of people that need the Lord. They may need the Lord for salvation. They may need the Lord for guidance. They may need the Lord for comfort. They may need the Lord for direction. They may need the Lord in many, many different ways. But if we're not careful today, we focus so much on our burdens that we don't see the thief on the cross right next to us. Because our eyes are all on our suffering. Our eyes are just on our problem today. We'll run past people around us. We'll run right past them. You ever think sometimes when someone comes into your life, you're like, okay, so you're the thorn in the flesh that Paul's talking about. Maybe they're the thief on the cross that Jesus says, I know you're going through a lot. Maybe all I really need you to do right now is to love thy neighbor as thyself. Why don't you love your neighbor as you love your schedule? Love your neighbor as you love your time. Love your neighbor as you love your possessions. Love your neighbor as you love your money. Love your neighbor more than you love your reputation without. So Jesus hanging there. 
in all of his burden, in all of his agony, in the very throes of it, he cared about the eternal soul of the person next to him. Can I tell you that the death and the eventual resurrection of Christ would have meant nothing to this thief if Jesus did not turn to him in this moment? Don't miss that. That Jesus dying and Jesus being resurrected would have meant nothing to that thief that said, remember me, if Jesus did not in that moment of his greatest agony that today you'll be with me in paradise and to show love and compassion. And can I tell you this morning as we celebrate Christ's sacrifice, as we celebrate the resurrection, remember that every person that we encounter needs Christ. Every person. Every person needs Christ. You can't give Christ to the wrong person. And I can't, can I tell you that every person needs Christ, even those people that repulse us. Say, Brother Phil, I'm a Christian. Ain't nobody like to repulse me. Oh, yeah? I think we all have people in our lives that we are repulsed by, that we turn from, that we don't show the same love and favor that we do to other people because of who they are and what they do. But can I tell you that show the same love to that person that you would love to see come to Christ as that person that you look at and it repulses you to even see them. Because the Bible teaches that we really understood hell the way Jesus talks about hell. You wouldn't want your worst enemy to spend eternity in hell. You wouldn't want that. We wouldn't want that. But we see that we are accepted in Christ. We see how he talks about, hey, you... Today, today you should be with me in paradise. I love looking in the book of Ephesians for time today. We won't go there. But if you want to talk about being accepted by Christ's death, read sometime Ephesians chapter number 1, verses 5 through 9. I'd like to just give you the verse number 6 just to say it. It says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Can I tell you something today just to help you out and help myself out? It doesn't matter how many sermons I preach. It don't matter how many times I'm up here. It don't matter how many funerals I do, how many weddings I do, how many verses I quote. I am not accepted by Christ because of all that. I am accepted by God only because of what Jesus Christ has done in my life. And can I tell you, you're not going to stand before God the Father one day, which you will, and be able to look at him and say, Lord, Lord, have we not done many things? Uh, Lord, Lord, don't, don't I got a membership there down there at Emmanuel? Uh, Lord, Lord, didn't I get baptized? I mean, Brother Phil baptized me. Hey, Brother Layfield, the Star Church, he baptized me. Lord, Lord, I was a deacon. Lord, I sang in the choir. Lord, I did this. And he's going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And the scary part of that verse in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, many will say to me in that day. That scares me for a lot of people that call themselves Christians and sit in churches today. Because they're trusting in everything they do for God. There is nothing I can do to merit salvation. There is nothing. My righteousness is as filthy rags. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing you can do to earn heaven. Because if you can earn heaven, it ceases to be a gift. If it's the gift of God, working makes it no longer a gift. And I want us to understand that our acceptance comes through Christ. But not only that, but I want us to see thirdly that because it is finished, you can have victory over your sin. You say, what do you mean have victory over your sin? What I mean is when Jesus died on the cross, he broke sin's hold on us. If you would, flip over to the book of Romans, if you would, just for a moment. Romans chapter number 6. 
And you can have victory over your sin. If I can say it, if I can be so bold, over your sinful habits. Over those things in your life that have a hold on you. You say, Brother Phil, I don't sin anymore since I got saved. Well, you've probably only been saved for 15 seconds. And even if I've been saved 15 seconds, I'd probably still sin a good bit in that time plan. By the way, you just sin because you're prideful about it. But anyhow. But in Romans chapter number 6, I want us to see something. In verse number 6, it says this. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and then henceforth we should not serve sin for he that is dead is freed from sin he's saying there that if you are in christ he said if you're dead he means this is that you have been quickened that means he's made you alive as it talks about in the book of romans excuse me ephesians chapter 2 that he's quickened you he's made you alive and because of that we don't have to serve sin anymore we don't have to give ourselves back to those things in our life that displease God and cause distance between us and God. And as he says in verse 7, we are freed from sin. Can I tell you, as long as you breathe in and breathe out, you will not be freed from the presence of sin. But if you know the Lord is your Savior, you don't have to be a prisoner to the power of sin in your life. You will always have sin presence in your life, just like we talked about a few weeks ago. Anxiety, I don't know one in here has that at all. Everyone's good, at peace, very tranquil, everybody's good. But can I tell you that anxiety, that what if, those fears, those worries, you will never escape the presence of it, but you don't have to be in the prison of it. And can I tell you this morning, there's many people that are children of God that are saved because of what Christ's done, and he's freed you from having to be a slave to that sin. But we voluntarily go right back. He's freed us. He's given us the power to overcome it. That we can be free from that sin. What does it talk about in, in Hebrews? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We look unto him. And to talk about what that sin that what so easily beset us. Can I tell you? There are things in my life that trip me up. And I give myself back to them and I sin over and over again. You say, Brother Phil, I really would like to know what is your besetting sins? Well, tough. I ain't going to tell you. Okay. Can I tell you something? We don't need to worry about our besetting sins. We need to look at our Savior that gives us victory over our sins. And I may I tell it to you this way. You ever sometimes feel in your life that you're sorry as a Christian? Here's an idea. Quit being sorry and to serve Christ. I know that doesn't make me popular. But you know what? We can all say, man, I'm just not the Christian I need to be. Then why don't you ask God to make you the Christian you need to be? Because can I tell you this? As the Bible says, that in myself dwelleth no good thing. I have sometimes in my own heart and life said, I want to be the best Christian I can be. I want to do better. But I can't do it because as he says in John chapter 15, verse 5, for without me, ye can do nothing. My prayer needs to quit being God. I'm going to be the best Christian I can be and say, God, make me into who you want me to be. You know the problem with praying, make me into who you want me to be? It takes my hands off the wheel. I really like being in charge. I really like being the person that makes the decisions. But he can give us victory over those sinful habits and those sinful things in our life. You look down in Romans 6, verse 12. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey in the lust thereof. He says, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness um, unto sin. He says, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments unto righteousness unto God. That God did not save us to stay how we were. God saved us to change us. 
And can I tell you this morning, you say, Brother Phil, I, I'm a young Christian. I've just recently put my faith and trust in Christ. And when I look at other Christians, I look at them and think, man, there's no way I'm going to be that. Well, you ain't supposed to be like other Christians. You are uniquely, wonderfully made. My goal is not to be like other Christians. My goal is to be like Christ. We like to say around here, Christian life's not about perfection, but it is about direction. What direction is your life heading in the way you live and the way you do the things that you do? I will never be Christ as long as I'm breathing in and out. But that doesn't mean I should stop striving to be. Many of us get to the point we never can be Christ, so we just do our own thing. But he says, don't serve sin any longer. The next thing I want you to see is this. Because it is finished, you can experience Christ living through you. You say, Brother what do you mean I can experience Christ living through me? Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 is a great verse. Galatians 2.20 is written to a church that is struggling in their, in their Christian walk and struggling with different things. And in Galatians, and talking about the idea, Paul wanted to explain to them that you are in Christ, but let Christ be in you. You ever sometimes feel to yourself that I'm in Christ, I'm saved, but boy, the way I live my life, I'm, <laughs> Christ isn't in me. In the way that I live, and we need to understand the principle is this. Hudson Taylor, famous missionary, said this. The principle is not I, but Christ. And Galatians 2.20 says this. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can I tell you, when you face that temptation tomorrow, you need to say to yourself, yet not I, but what does Christ want? When that person meets you tomorrow morning, and you know what, you've only got one nerve left, and they got their eyes set on jumping all over it, you need to think to yourself, yet not what I want to do, but how does Christ want me to do it? Yet not I, but Christ. Whenever you go through that struggle in your health, and that struggle in your family, and the struggle in whatever you face, won't you ask yourself in that moment, not what I want to do, but how does Christ want me to respond in this? Because, by the way, the whole baloney about once you put your faith and trust in Christ, you have no people, problems, or pressures that you don't like, is trash. It is. But you know what you do get? Peace. And the peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You can keep your heart and mind, or you can let the peace of God keep it. It's your choice. It's there, but it's your choice. And in our lives, we, when we face these things, you can experience Christ living through you. You ever sometimes respond in a way or do something, you look back later and say, Ain't no, I don't know how in the world God did that. It just had to be God because I know I wouldn't respond it that way. You know why? Because we're allowing God. Try to understand this, and I try to remind myself of this a lot. God is all-powerful, but God allows me to limit him in the way he works in my life. God's not going to force himself on you. But you have to allow him. You have to allow him to be that vessel. Next, I'd like for us to see this. It is finished. And when we put our faith in Christ, means you can trust the love of God for your life. You can trust the love of God for your life. Back in Romans, if you don't mind, Romans chapter number 8. You say, what do you mean, Phil, that I can trust the love of God for my life? As I mentioned, you're going to, if you're here today and, and you put your faith and trust in Christ and you walk out of this room a child of God, can I tell you, you're still going to face the same problems, the same pressures, the same people when you walk out those doors. You're going to. 
but you can trust the love of God for your life because we often can't see God's purposes behind our suffering. You ever sometimes go through something and say, God, why am I going through this? I mean, why am I doing this, God? I mean, we can't see his purpose. All we can see is the suffering. Can I encourage you that in the fire that you are in, be like the three Hebrew children that got thrown in the fire. See the Christ walking around with you in that fire. Just don't have your eyes on the flames. Some of us never, ever see Christ in our trial because our eyes are on our storm. We never, ever see what Christ wants to do with it. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. His suffering may mean, his purpose may mean my suffering. You ever thought of that? His purpose for my life may mean my suffering. Verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be what? Conformed to the image of his son, that he, that he might be the firstborn among many. Moreover, for whom he did foreknow them, he also called. And whom he called them, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. In verse 31, it says, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things. You may be here today and your suffering may be the purpose of God and the purpose of God in your suffering. I guarantee you part of it is the middle of verse number 29 is that you will be conformed to the image of Christ. I have to ask myself this. God, am I willing to endure this suffering if it makes me more like Jesus? Can I tell you, I like to say every day I say yes. A lot of days I don't want to be more like Jesus, I just want out of my trial. Think about it. When something hits your life, what do we 99% of the time pray for? Where's the exit? But it says, yea, though I walk through the valley. That means it's a process. He says, I'll be with thee. See, we'd rather have the exit without God than be in the middle of the trial with God. What if the whole purpose and what you're enduring, and I don't know what you're enduring, but let me tell you, I'm definitely not belittling it. What if your sickness, what if your finances, what if your, your frustration, what if your trial that you're going through that you didn't ask for or ever dreamed for, what if the thing you're going through, God says, if you just trust my love. And he says in the verses on down, if I gave my son for you, won't I freely give you everything else you need to endure that trial? He'll give you everything you need if we'll accept it. If we'll trust it. I kind of think about it like this. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll read my Bible and I'll go to church. And I got finances on my mind. I don't know if any of y'all ever have more month than you have money. I have that every now and then. Just 12 months of the year. I have that. So sometimes I got financial issues. And, and by the way, you ever find out when you're in financial stress, normally something pops up. It's normally not the thing that you... Oh, yeah, I got lots of money lying around for that. Yeah, I got no problem. So you got financial stress, and then you got stress, you know, sometimes of your job. Hey, I love my job. I have no stress in my job, okay? Everybody listen. I got no stress in my job. And, uh, but, you know, you got you know, stress from your job, and, and let's just be honest. Sometimes your, your health is not where you want it to be, and it never comes when you want it. And then sometimes you have issues with family, whether it be with spouse or, or children, those blessings of God. Amen? We have all those in our lives. And then, you know, so I'm carrying this around, and then I'm, you know, there's this unexpected thing that comes in my life now, and, and then here I wasn't ready for that, and I surely wasn't praying for patience, but God's putting people in my life that make me patient. And so I got all this going on in my life. And here's what I do. I go to church, okay? I go to church, and I get on my knees or I sit in my seat, 
And I say, Jesus, here's my money problem. Here's my health problem. Here's this burden that's in my family. Here's my child that's, I know you love them, but they're away from me right now. Here's my problem with my job. Here's my problem with my own flaws and sins in my life. And we lay it on the altar. And then we get through, sing, we get through singing. We say, in Jesus' name, amen. And you know what we do? And we walk back out with it. We walk right back out with it. It doesn't say acknowledge your problems to God. It says casting all your care on him. For he care. If you know what that means, casting has a desire with no return to ever come back. It's not fishing. The mentality is to violently sling and throw with no desire to ever come back. You want the peace of God? You ain't going to get it until you give it to God. Because as long as I'm trying to be God of the situation, he's going to sit back and just watch. Don't be God of your situation. Don't be God of your marital problem. Don't be God of your children that aren't doing what you feel like they should do. Don't try to be God of the sin that's struggling in your life now. Don't try to be God and work out that situation on your job. Let God be God. But you've got to give it to him. And you know what I've noticed? God in his love, yet in his grace, says, I'll let you endure it as long as you want to carry it. Go ahead. That's still God's love that let me do it. Well, if God really loved me, he would just take it away. No, because I'm being conformed to the image of his son. I'm being conformed to the image of Christ. And I know our time has left us. But I want to finish with this. It is finished. Also means that we have a message to share with others. If you would, flip back to Matthew 28. This is our last passage. And again, I appreciate your thought and time. So Jesus dies. And by the way, don't forget in that passage in John, it says, and he gave up the ghost. That's pretty big. They didn't kill Jesus. Jesus gave his life. But in Matthew 28, the passage that we like to read, and there's several ones that you can look at with the resurrection. But in verse number one of Matthew 28, it says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. And some of the greatest words you can ever see is verse 6. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, and there shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And so we see this passage of Scripture as we celebrate today. Uh, as the women go to the tomb, and it says, it talks about in other passages that the accounts in the Gospels, that a great stone was rolled away, and the men that guard it fell as if they were dead. And it says there that when they came to the tomb, the angel says, you seek Jesus. He ain't here. He's risen just as he said. Can I tell you? Just as Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead, every promise he's ever made in this book that I am holding and the book you have in your lap, you can take it to the bank and pass there. He will be faithful to us. Aren't you glad that God is more faithful to us than we'll ever be to him? 
and we see the message to share with others. And as you notice here, it says, Jesus is raised from the dead. And we're not going to take time to look there, but Mark account says something pretty cool. He says, go tell the disciples and Peter. What's the big deal with that? Who's the one that denied him three times? Peter. Who's the one that says, though everyone forsake you, I will not forsake you. He says, Peter, you're going to deny me for the, for the morning. For the cock crows. You, you're going to deny me. But he says, make sure Peter knows I want restoration. I love John 21. John 21. Peter, lovest thou me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, lovest thou me? You know I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, lovest thou me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. See, because Peter's life did not have to be defined by his rejecting and denying Christ, Christ knew what he had in mind for Peter coming up on Pentecost and what he would do through the power of Christ to see thousands of people saved. Can I tell you this morning, just for a moment, if your life right now is in the darkness of rejection and denying Christ by the way you live, can I tell you there's a God in heaven because of what Jesus done is looking at you and saying, lovest thou me? He's got a plan for your life. And can I tell you that we have a message, and it says here in verse 7, and go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead. Look in verse 8. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples' word. I have written beside the margin of my Bible, beside verse 8, where it says they quickly departed and with fear and great joy they ran to bring the word to the disciples. I have written this down. How do I leave church? They said, Brother Phil, I got no problem. When church is over, you say amen. Finally, I run. You know, I got, that's not exactly what I'm shooting for here. But when you run out those doors, when you hear God's word, whether it's here or maybe in your devotion or whether whatever church you're a part of, do you think, man, I've got to share what I just got? Or do you think, well, that was really nice. Time to go back to life. That's what we do. That's what we do. But he says, go quickly and tell us disciples. I close with this. Many of you know my testimony. You just kind of have to endure it again for a moment, okay? 32 years ago today. Didn't seem like a big day. 32 years ago today, God did something in my life that I didn't think was big. See, before I got to Easter at the age of eight, when I was six years old, I had a mom and daddy that loved me to death. I had my mama that grew up in a background with a father that was a drunk and a womanizer. And he died shortly after my birth. My father grew up in a home that had nothing. He actually dropped out of high school so he could provide for his family. He said it was really cool the first tax return at 17 to list you got seven dependents. He had a father that was a raging alcoholic. Beat him, chased him with a knife. Beat his mother almost to a pulp and almost killed her in front of his eyes. And my dad was determined to be a good man. My mama was determined to be a good woman. But can I tell you something? Good is not godly. I love my parents. I love everything that they've been through. I love their testimony. But at the age of six, there's a guy that knocked on my door one Saturday morning. 
He says, hey, I just want to see if you like to ride a bus to church. I remember thinking to myself, ride a bus? That sounds pretty cool. Right now, I don't think I'd want to get on a bus, you know. I rode those buses before. Let me tell you, when you get a bus about 70 kids and a nice warm Tennessee day, whew, thank God for windows that can go down. And I said, I don't really know what I want. And I wasn't going to share this because I know many of you have heard me say this. But yesterday at our Easter carnival, Eli looked at me. He said, Pastor Phil, you want this? It's a piece of double bubble bubble gum. Steve Morris, the man that invited me to church, I wanted to tell him, no, I don't want to go to church. And he did the magical thing. He held out his hand and said, but I'll give you a piece of bubble gum. And I said, hooked. He said, you come. There's more where that came from. And I've been battling telling you this. I don't know why. Take with it what you want. But when Eli yesterday looked at me and said, Brother Phil, he said, oh, Pastor Phil, he calls me Pastor. Pastor Phil, you want this? I took it, and he looked at me and smiled, and he goes, it's gum. <laughs> Can I tell you that Steve Morris didn't give me Christ, but he gave me gum. Some of us will never share Christ with people because we feel like we've got to have it all memorized and get it all worked out. Maybe Jesus just wants you to give somebody some gum. Maybe he just wants to say, I just want to show you love. And you can leave here in a moment. Go back to your life. But there's people around you that are crying out for Christ. And they may never say it. And you may not be able to go through the Romans road. But you can give them the love of God. Or you can go out here today and just think about your meal and everything else you got going on. It's up to you. But I want to encourage you today, Christians, why don't you pick up some gum spiritually? And why don't we go share that love of Christ? See, I rode that bus for two and a half years. Almost three. When I was eight years old, 32 years ago, that kind of lets you know how old I am in case you like math. My dad woke me up one Sunday morning. It happened to be Easter. He said, Philip, get up, get dressed. Time to go to church. I said, Dad, tell Mr. Steve I don't want to go today. He said, no, son, we're going to church today. Easter Sunday, 32 years ago, was the first time my family ever went to church. And it didn't seem like much. Probably like making a decision today. Probably didn't seem like much to you. But can I tell you something? God changed my life. I put my faith and trust in Christ as an eight-year-old boy. And a few months later, my dad put his faith and trust in Christ. My mom put her faith and trust in Christ. My sister later it took a lot of work on God, but put her faith and trust in Christ. My mom and dad served at the same church where it picked me up as a bus kid for almost 20 years. My dad just retired from being there. By the way, he wasn't a preacher. He was a carpenter. He worked at the church as a carpenter and a maintenance man. He cleaned toilets and he built buildings. He said, anything I can do to serve Christ, anything I can do to show the love. My mom worked there at the church doing different things, and my sister today, I talked to her, is in South Germany. And this morning, her and her husband shared Christ with about 50 people that were German, that were from Morocco, they were from North Korea. 
and people from Turkey that want to believe in a God called Allah and never even probably heard of a God named Jesus. It all came from this. I'm not taken away from Christ. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. Christ didn't have to use Steve Morris, but he did. Christ doesn't have to use you. But he wants to. Let today be a day that changes your life. Why don't you let today be a day that you help change the life of somebody else? Forgive me, I'm not normally like this, so if you come back, I don't normally do this. But I'll tell you, there's not a piece of bubble gum that's ever going to mean more to me in my life than this right here because there's not a God that's ever done more for my life than the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God it's finished. Let's stand together. Father, thank you so much for the day. Thank you for the time we can be together.